I hate these places. Not, not couches, no. You see, I, I love couches and sofas. I love getting home after a good, long, hard day's work and taking a nap on our couch in our sunroom with the doors open and the birds chirping. But this is more than just a couch. You see, I hate waiting rooms. I don't think I truly realized how much I hated these places called waiting rooms until after this last summer. It all began when I decided and agreed to join a sand volleyball team with some friends. And what happened was two weeks in a row, I found myself injured from sand volleyball, the beginner's league. First, it was a staph infection in my ankle from the sand, and then the next week, I thought I had broken my toe. Two weeks in a row, two nights of volleyball, two sessions in one of these, the infamous waiting room. I knew I was getting a bad taste in my mouth from these waiting rooms, but it didn't really come to a climax until after our college-age summer retreat. You see, at the very end of this last summer, we took about 25 college students up to Camp Ileana for a summer retreat. And at the very end of the retreat, we thought it would be a great idea to have some good, clean family fun and play some flamingo football. Now, I don't know if you've heard of flamingo football. It's not really on ESPN or anything. But it's guys versus girls tackle football where the guys have to hop on one leg the entire time like flamingos. It's very fun to watch. And what happened was it was fourth down. If this one team scored, they would win. If they didn't score, they lost. The whole game, all the marbles were in this one basket. It was coming down this one play. And after the collision occurred and the bodies scattered away, one girl was left of having taken a knee to the head. And it brought me back to this treacherous place called the waiting room. And as I was sitting there worrying about this person that had been entrusted to my care, stressing about whether or not the doctor would be able to glue the cut shut or if stitches were needed, I realized the reason for my disdain for this place called the waiting room. It's all about the fear of the unknown, right? I mean, you know something is wrong, that's what brings you to the room. Yet everything else is a mystery. How much is it going to cost? How much will my insurance cover? What will the doctor prescribe? Is surgery needed? Medications? Follow-up visits? How long will this ailment impact me? It's a place dedicated to worrying about the unknown future. And as I was sitting there in that waiting room, I began to look around at the other people that were there. Some of the people there, they had the obvious injuries, like they had gashes in their arms or, you know, they had uh, something wrong with their ankle and you could tell that it was broken or something, that it was wrapped. But then there are the kids that were there that were screaming and crying and the parents were trying to hush them up and quiet them down. And I began to wonder what was going through their parents' minds. What, what were they thinking? How were they preparing themselves to hear the news from the doctor about their two- or three-year-old kid? Were they ready to hear the words, well, she, she has a hole in her heart, or he has asthma, or I'm sorry to tell you, it's, it's cancer? And this one question kind of stuck out in the forefront of my mind. How do you prepare for an unknown future? How do you prepare for an unknown future? How do you prepare yourself for something you know nothing about? How do you get ready for something you've never fully experienced? 
You know what the worst thing I think is about waiting rooms? There's only one thing you can do, one verb, one action. All you can do is wait. The rooms are designed to help you accomplish that one thing. To wait until the doctor calls you and they come and get you. That's it. Sure, there's possibly some TVs in the room or some magazines that can help you kind of endure these torture chambers. Sure, you can pull out your iPhone or tablet and play a game or answer some emails. But the main purpose of the room is to help you pass the time away as you wait for the nurse or doctor to call your name and snatch you from the jaws of this purgatory we call the waiting room. If you can't tell, I hate waiting rooms. I hate waiting for a mystery. The question stands, how do you prepare for an unknown future? How do you handle the period in between the past and future called the present? How do you prepare for something you know nothing about? And I think this question is really at the heart of what this whole Christmas series has been about. For the last five to six weeks, we've been studying what Jesus says he will do to help us until he comes again. He's provided us a comforter in the Holy Spirit in the local church. He has warned us through his word and his prophets to repent and to be faithful. He has encouraged us to finish strong, and he has advised us to rely on his Holy Spirit, his paraclete, his counselor. And now his desire is that we would be ready, prepared for what is coming, for his parousia, for his appearing. We are in the middle of two comings of Jesus. He came as a baby and will come again as the king of the universe. And here we are, stuck smack dab in the middle, waiting. So how do you prepare for an unknown future? In Jesus' ministry, according to the Gospel of Matthew, his very last sermon to his disciples focused in on this topic of being ready, of being prepared for his second advent, his second coming. And at the end of the sermon, he tells a story about a master going away on a journey. It begins in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, he gave two bags of gold. And to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So the story goes like this. One master, three servants. The master gives each servant a certain amount of money for them to be stewards of until he returns. One servant goes immediately and doubles what the master gave him. The second does the same. Then the third servant goes and digs a hole in the ground and hides his master's money. You might have heard this story called the parable of the talents. You might have heard it preached this way, that if you don't use the talents and abilities that God has given you for his kingdom, he will take them away from you. Yet after studying this passage, I don't think that this is what it's truly about. If you notice in the translation I read, the new, new international version, they translate the word usually translated talents as bags of gold. I think this is more appropriate. This story has been hijacked from its original intent for years because the word talent has implied to our contemporary world our abilities, our gifts. 
but the word in the original language is literally describing a weight of money. It would be like saying, I got five pounds of nickels or five pounds of dimes or five pounds of pure gold. The word talent is a weight measurement. It's not referring to our abilities. So what does this allotment of resources stand for? What does it represent? Look at the very first word of the parable. It's the word again. This word implies that this parable, this story, is referring back to something. And when you look at Matthew 25 as a whole, you realize that Jesus tells three stories in a row. He tells a story about ten virgins. He tells about a master and three servants. And then the third story is about sheep and goats. At the very beginning of all three of these stories, Jesus establishes what all of them are about. He says this, Matthew 25, verse 1, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like, so forth and so on. All of these parables are about the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tom Long, professor at Candler School of Theology, said in his commentary on Matthew, the parable is not a gentle tale about what Christians do with their individual gifts and talents, as helpful as that may be, but a disturbing story about what Christians do or do not do with the gospel as they wait for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. See, these parables are not just little kids' stories to share at bedtime. They're not just analogies or anecdotes that you can drop into any casual conversation. They are larger than life, upside-down, kingdom-transforming stories that draw your entire being into them and demand a response. They aren't just there for moral life lessons. They are meant to capture your life and your existence into them and change the very fabric of who you are. They are about people like you and me. Jesus sets the stage. One master gives his business, his resources, to three servants. And we see two approaches. We see two examples of how to respond to this gift. Each approach is an attempt at answering this question. How do you prepare for an unknown future? You see, the servants weren't sure whether or not the master was coming back, what he would do with the money entrusted to them. All they knew was that he had entrusted them a large amount of his estate, and they were responsible for what he had given them. They were unsure about the future. And we see two different responses to this gift. The first way to respond to an uncertain future is to focus on your future. So focus on your future. Look at what this one servant did, starting in verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said. I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold on the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. This was the safest thing the servant could have done, which was basically nothing. It was like he took his master's resources and went and sat in a waiting room, waiting for the doctor or master to call him when his time was ready. He could have went out and risked the money by buying stocks or real estate like the other servants. And, and there was the risk that, yes, he could have lost it all. He could have maybe risked it, maybe not as much as those crazy risky servants, by investing the money with the banker. And actually the master said, this is what you should have done. But in that period, bankers were not to be trusted. And still, there was a risk that if he did invest it with bankers, he could lose all the money. 
R.T. France says it this way, in the circumstance, to bury money in the ground was probably the better way to keep it safe. The course of action demanded by the master may have been no less risky than the commercial ventures attempted by the other two slaves. But get this, risk is at the heart of discipleship. By playing safe, the cautious slave has achieved nothing. And it is his timidity and lack of enterprise which is condemned. It is an attitude representing a religion concerned only with not doing anything wrong. This servant was not concerned with making money for the master. He was concerned about covering his own rear. He was concerned with his future. What would happen to him if the deal went bad, if the master never came back, if the master took the money he made and left him with nothing? The servant's focus was on his future. It reminds me of the hit TV show, Doomsday Preppers. Have you seen this show? It's a reality TV show that profiles various survivalists or so-called preppers who are preparing for the end of the world. Since its original air date in February of 2012, it's had two seasons, 23 episodes, all focusing on this idea of people preparing for the end of the life as we know it. It's the most popular series, get this, in the history of the National Geographic Channel. Different preppers take the lives God has given them, and they dig holes and bury them, protecting themselves from an unknown future. They get everything they have and sit on couches and waiting rooms, hoping, praying, investing thousands of hours and millions of dollars in focusing on their future. Paul prepares for a polar shift. Tim loses part of his thumb during firearm practice while filming for the show. James from Maine works on homesteading techniques in order to be prepared for overpopulation. Colorado computer programmer Preston has collected over 11,200 types of seeds and plants for biosphere living. Ed and Diana are prepared to survive fully underground in their decommissioned Atlas missile silo. And Texas prepper Mr. Wayne bases his doomsday fears on a Chinese financial takeover. That's just some of the preppers from the first season. These preppers have spent their time digging their holes and burying their talents. They spend their lives sitting on a couch in the waiting room, doing everything they can to protect their future, to save their rears, to survive the days to come. You know, when you think about it, it's ultimately, ultimately all about fear, isn't it? It's ultimately about fear. It's about fear of war, fear of disease, fear of another recession, fear of the unknown future that keeps these preppers on their couches simply waiting. And it was fear that led the servant to hide his bag of money in the ground. Look at what the servant said to the master. He says this, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was, what do he say? Afraid. Afraid. I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. Fear of the unknown future. Any future keeps preppers frozen on couches in waiting rooms, keeps them investing their money in holes in the ground. And friends, it does the same for us. It's easy to point at these doomsday preppers and dismiss them as those nutty extremists in Idaho or Montana. But we have to realize that we have our own couches in waiting rooms that we sit on. We dig our own holes and hide our own gifts. Steve remained silent about his faith for fear of losing his job. 
Denise doesn't invite the new kid's mom to mom's day out for fear that it will change the dynamics of the group. Jerry doesn't tithe because he's concerned about saving enough for retirement. And Zach and Jessica, they won't let their kid go to Bible college because, well, we're not sure. We're concerned that they will never be able to provide for a family. And the parable shows us what happens to this servant. Jesus says he is thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master calls him wicked, lazy, and worthless. Yet so often this is how we approach Christianity, isn't it? We see this period in between Jesus' first coming and second coming like a waiting room. We worry about all we have to do in order to get into the room, to be forgiven, to have our faith secure. And then we sit on our couches and hope we don't do anything to mess it up, to lose our salvation, to risk anything. We answer the question, how do you prepare for an unknown future? By saying, well, sometimes you just got to look out for number one. Or God only helps those who help themselves. And yet God calls those who prepare for his coming by focusing on themselves lazy, wicked, and worthless. Here is the simple truth we see from this parable. In order to be ready, you must prepare for God's future, not your future. That is the second approach we see in the parable. The servant that is given five bags of gold immediately puts it to work and makes five more. The servant given two bags of gold puts it to work and gains two more. They risk. They stepped out in faith. The fear of the unknown did not freeze them on their couches. Look what the master says to them. He says, well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many. Being ready for the king's return is not like sitting on a couch in a waiting room, doing nothing except waiting for him to come back. It's more like preparing for a baby to be born. Monica and I have a number of friends in our lives that are pregnant, expecting a child. And they're all in the process of this getting ready stage. I don't know if you know this or not, but when you're getting ready to have a kid, you don't sit on a couch and wait. That's not what you do. That's not how you prepare. You decorate a nursery. You baby-proof your house. You buy cribs and clothes, food and sippy cups, pacifiers and toys. You actively participate in what is coming. You move from a couch in a waiting room with magazine in hand to a crib in a nursery with a paintbrush in hand. These two servants were unsure about the future, yet they joined with the master in his work, his kingdom, his agenda. They immediately put to work what God is doing here. I don't know if you know this, but God is moving here in this world. He is making all things new. He is bringing his kingdom here on earth. And the way to be ready for our unknown future, friends, is to join with him in that process. And boy, it's easier said than done, isn't it? Just in, the few, just in the last few months, I have traded in a couch for a baby crib. No high schoolers, Monica and I are not pregnant. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, don't think that. Okay, it's not my big reveal. But I, I probably, I was probably like a lot of you. I don't know, maybe you are a lot like me. I was content sitting on my couch 
in my waiting room, desiring to fly under the radar until Jesus would come and snatch me away. Monica and I were in a small group that we loved. Here's a picture of our small group at Kyle and Sarah's wedding. It was a great, fun group. Three pastors, two brothers, a family friend and a college roommate, and all of our better halves, as you can see. And we just had a ball together. Every Tuesday night, we would show up, and for the first hour, hour and a half, we would split up, guys in one room, girls in the other. And we would just share life together. We would share our struggles and our pain, our excitements and, our, and, and, and the sins we were struggling with. We would confess sins. We would pray for each other. We would laugh together. Sometimes that's, that's a time where we were just separated guys and girls. It would take up the whole night. We were content with being together. We were set for life. We were excited to see us raise each other's kids up and be at each other's kids' wedding, weddings 20 years from now. Yet we began to ask ourselves questions like this. What is best for God's kingdom? What is God's will, God's plan? Because in order to be ready, you must prepare for God's future, not yours. Is it being in our group comfortable and secure on our couches, in our waiting rooms, with our gold hidden in the ground? Or was God calling us to something more? So we decided to split right down the middle and start two new groups. This was in October. Now look at the picture that both of our groups took at our Christmas parties. They're fun groups. We started off with a full group of around 14, seven couples. And now look, 26 people, 13 couples in these two groups. In three months, our maxed out group of 14 has almost doubled. We moved from sitting on a couch with gold buried in the ground to putting together a crib multiplying God's kingdom. So what about you? What about you? What couch are you sitting on? Which room are you waiting in? What bag of gold have you buried in the ground? What fear has frozen you? Because here's the thing, I don't know if you know this or not, but here's a secret I wanna let you in on as Christians. We don't have to prepare for an unknown future. We don't have to prepare for an unknown future. We know the end of the story. We know our future. We know where this place is heading. God is bringing his kingdom here on earth. His kingdom is coming. His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, one day we will dance on golden streets, worshiping with people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, from every economic class and educational level. There is a wedding that is coming one day where Jesus, the groom, will come and be united to his bride, the church, and we will be together as one, living in unity and perfect harmony for eternity. So what do we do now until he comes again? Let's pick up our paintbrushes and screwdrivers. Let's begin preparing this place for God's kingdom to come. Let's feed the hungry and clothe the naked and provide a home for the homeless. Let's provide a family for the orphans and take care of the widows. Let's reach the unreached in the corners of the world. Let's all stand up together and join 
I meant that. Let's all stand up together now and join with the angels in heaven as they are singing around the throne to the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's yearn for that time when the master looks us square in the eyes and he says this, well done, good and faithful servants. This morning, I wanna leave you with just one question. Are you ready?